It's the last day of February 2022, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. We'll start out with uh, Ukraine. Ukraine supplies 90% of U.S. semiconductor grade neon and what it means to chip supply chain. And so, of course, the neon here is a, a gas integral to the lasers used to m- make the chips in that process. And then Russia also has 35% of the U.S.'s palladium supply, which is a rare metal that can be used to create semiconductors. So, of course, here's more, you know, angst and worry on the supply chain front. You know, we talked about this recently. There's like more than 50 points of single points of failure in the semiconductor supply chain where like some kind of country or locality has more than 80 percent of the world supply. So looks like, you know, here's just like a small thing, of course something goes down in Ukraine, everyone's scrambling for some kind of information. What will this do? What will this impact? Um, So we'll see, right? Um, This is a big, big one that everyone seems to be tracking. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of interesting. You know, we, I think we took it for granted that we were always going to have all the microelectronics we needed. And we, you know, just relied on these sort of, uh, uh, you, you know, these big, big fab shops like TSMC and and others, and now you know. Now we've realized that we're starting to outgrow, outgrow the supply, and, and the uh, you know being able to even maintain that level of, of productivity we had before is getting harder. So yeah, the, the, the article also makes the point that you know as AI grows, um, there's going to be you know a fifty percent growth in across all computing categories, and so you're just going to see more and more demand for these things. What was interesting though is that some of the bottlenecks they identified. Are actually more of like the legacy logic chips um, that are like slightly lower end. You know, they're used in automobiles, and medical devices, power management, stuff like that. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Is um, yeah, maybe it's maybe this won't affect some of the super high end stuff, but it's going to impact a lot of things that are in everyday devices. So people will notice it. Uh, but this is why the last point I'll make here is that you know we've been talking about passing these uh, in, you know innovation and Com- competition act. And the Chips Act. Um, there's also the Competes Act. Like, there's all these acts that are kind of sitting in Congress. And they've been sitting there for quite a while, and they're supposed to, you know, put a ton more money towards this domestic semiconductor research, design, and manufacturing. But uh, we just haven't got agreement, you know. And uh, from what I've read, it looks like there's still a lot of uh, disagreements between the House and Senate on this. So I guess we we really need them to uh, to get after this, so at least we can we can start to build for the future. And, you know, so this won't be a long-term problem, hopefully. Well, it seems like, you know, with these supply chain issues, they're saying, like, in order to get all that straightened out, it's like at least five to ten years, right? But looks like median inventory of chips fell from 40 days in 2019 to less than five days in 22, and chip fabs are running at more than 90% utilization. So, um, you know, everything's up and humming and inventories are down, so... You know, we'll see what happens. The next one we got, Chief Naval Officer Gilday. We need a naval force of over 500 ships. So this has finally come back, right? Battle Force 2045 and the over 500 ships, which was almost like laughed out by like the civilian types, right? In in the DC area. Like that's just not reasonable considering the cost of these ships that we're buying and everything. But he's kind of restating here, 12 carriers, um, nine a force of big deck amphibs that are nine and then 19 or 20 lpds to support them 30 smaller amphibs 60 destroyers 50 frigates 50 frigates is interesting right that's that's a nice little bump up 
to the FFGX, 70 attack submarines, a dozen Columbia classes, and 100 support ships. And then there's that number again, 150 unmanned, right? So that's that's an interesting force level that they're they're going for. Um, it's just interesting that Gilday's kind of pounding on it again. He keeps saying like every you know force structure study that we've done kind of says we need to be about here. So I think he's pounding pounding his fists. But then the real question is, you know, you've already kind of named the ships that you want, right? So except for the unmanned, for for the most part, these things are already kind of in in the you know in the slot for being you know developed or like produced in quantity, but. It's not clear how they're going to get there unless they are able to drive down costs. And it's not even clear that the shipyards are able to get there, right? So um, any thoughts on, on the 500-ship Navy? Yeah, I think you should have gone for 1,000, you know, <laughs> just a nice round number. I mean, you might as well have, right? I mean, there's, yeah, there's absolutely no way the budgets can support this, um, especially given all of the other readiness uh, readiness challenges and things that are things that are eating up some of the budget. So, yeah, it's kind of disappointing a little bit because the Navy actually has a really nice, uh, I think, unmanned um, sort of vision for the future. And I know they've gotten a lot of pushback from Congress on on the unmanned side, but it is a little disappointing to see just like this complete uh, devotion to kind of the legacy operations. And, you know, I think somebody, uh, Admiral Selby, actually, when his, uh, in his uh, small agile mini, mini report did at the Stanford, you know, talked about like the 1930s and how, you know, when, when war planners were, were thinking about a war with Japan, they were all about the battleships, you know, and it was just like, you know, well, it would just be battleship versus battleship. And But the, the Navy actually had a hedge, right? They had some aircraft carriers they were playing around with. They had some submarines. And now it just sort of feels like we're, we're back in the old game of like, we're going to have carriers steam through and then we're going to have destroyers, you know, on the sides and we're going to have LCS out in the, you know, close to shore. It's just like I think everyone's kind of shown that like they're just not going to get that close. Like you're gonna you're gonna get uh, you're gonna get schwacked with these uh, ICBMs that are you know conventional warheads and hypersonic missiles and all kinds of all kinds of long range missiles coming at you. I mean, it's just I don't know. It's just kind of crazy. So yeah, I, I wish it would have been a little bit more kind of uh, thinking through the alternatives and saying you know I would have liked to see like three different coas. Like, hey, we could go with the legacy sort of approach, things that we have well-defined con-ops for, and it would be these with lots of carriers, lots of, you know, the amphib-, amphib ships and LCSs. And then here's another option. We go with fewer carriers. We do, you know, kind of those uh, Marine Corps amphib ships where the F-35s can land on, but there's only like a couple of them. We do some, you know, unmanned surface vessels. We do some this. I, yeah, I just would have liked to see some different options. It sounds like they're they're all in on the way that uh, they've always done business. So a little disappointing. Yeah, well, the uh, I guess in, you know, one of the things in the 30s, right, was there was the capital shipbuilding holiday and, and the budget squeeze. So they're kind of forced into, right, maybe if the budgets were pretty high, the Navy would never have ex- would have experimented in the 1930s with, with carrier operations. You know? And yeah, what does that say point. about today? <laughs> Well, I, actually, you know, it's funny you say that because I think a little bit of this, uh, them coming out, the Navy coming out with this right now, is because they realize that the, the budget's going to get a bump up. Uh, it looks like Biden's going to push that closer to like 770 or something like that. And so I think it's a, this is a little bit of a ploy to say, hey, here's all these things we still need. Make sure the Navy gets their chunk. Uh, so, yeah, it actually, it actually ironically might be like the opposite. They see more money and they're like, all right, let's go after these uh, expensive capital ships. 
Yeah, we'll see if they're able to get that funding at some point reasonable. It's like you bump up the funding and you you uh, authorize or and approve um, the appropriations with a month left or something, and then they, everyone's just scrambling to get it out. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, if you get the money in uh, June, it's sort of hard to hard to have a coherent plan for, for that fiscal year. But at least uh, with with procurement, you got like three years, I think it's five years to obligate, right, for, for shipbuilding, the SCN. So, but but still, you know, like inflation is going to be eating away at that pretty fast. So the fast, faster you're, one of the things there, right, the faster you're able to get on contract with these things, um, the better you're locking in the price from the government's perspective, right? And who knows what's like, what's all, what's going to happen with all of that. But it seems like the, the sooner, to, the better to lock in these kind of big production contracts. Yeah, but like you said, there, I mean, yeah, also, we don't have a lot of capacity in the shipyard. So even if you wanted to go build a ton of extra carriers and stuff, it, it doesn't seem like there's uh, there's really a lot of a lot of ways to do that, um, the way things are currently configured. So, yeah, it'd be kind of interesting, even if they could surge. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Maybe like the long-range uh, surface vessels, you know, the unmanned, they'll be able to surge those to a degree. There seems to be like they have... You know, Huntington Angles, of course, is is in there. They're building a new kind of facility. There's been a lot of investment from the traditionals, but then there's non-traditionals also playing. Um, so, you know, here's another report on Navy's large unmanned surface and undersea vehicles from USNI News, and they're mentioning in the FY22 budget, there's 434 million for R&D for large UVs. So that's both of the un- undersea and the surface uh, vessels, and large. USVs are 200 to 300 feet in length, and they have a displacement of 1,000 to 2,000 tons. They're about the size of a Corvette. Definitely way smaller than a frigate, but, you know, bigger than a patrol craft. And what they're really looking for these uh, large USVs to do is, of course, be that low-cost, high-endurance thing, but they want to have um, anti-submarine warfare and then strike payloads, principally anti-ship and land attack. So, you know, this is supposed to make up, you know, 150 of that force structure. I th- I think it's by 2045, right? So this doesn't seem too ambitious, especially since they're relatively small. Um, most of it, like, once you kind of get the technology down in terms of, like, the software, the automation, um, the configuration, it seems like you might be able to pump these out, right? Maybe 150 is on the low end. I don't know. Like, 2045 is a long way away, um, 13 years. Yeah, these. Yeah, the, the, I think you're right. I think the uh, unmanned surface vessels. I think they're uh, there's sort of uh, generic enough that you could probably get some of the civilian shipyards, uh, you know, engaged on them and, and, and probably turn them out at a lot lot faster rate. Um, but I, yeah, I think the problem, though, like we talked about, I think I think it was last week, is that um, the Navy's only ordered about four four of these like extra large under under certain surface vessels. And they really haven't placed any orders for these other ones because uh, they were trying to, and the the Navy or the uh, you know, congressional staffers said uh, guys aren't ready, and so they rechanged their whole strategy, and now it's all about enabling technology. So this 434 million is, you know, yeah, it's going to these U, these large UVs, but most of that is is you know for the enabling technologies, and it's the uh, it's all RDTNE, right? I mean, we're not actually getting into the procurement side, so. Um, so yeah, I, in that, that five-year plan too. So it looked like they were like planning like some five-year plan for getting all the enabling technologies in place. So if that holds, then it's particularly disappointing because 
it means that we'll never really get to scale. We'll never really be able to get those shipyards producing these fast, you know, probably like 10 years in the future. So, um, so yeah, I hope they can accelerate that, but I'm not, I'm not too optimistic right now. Yeah. It seems like I don't, I'm, I'm with you on that, but, um, yeah, it's, Congress is really just kind of pulling the plug on it to some degree. It feels like 434 million for both the large, you know, undersea and surface vessel. You know, they want to see all this. It's almost like the Navy has to react that way, right? I have to prove out every little thing on the subsystems, do land-based testing, you know, this, that, and the other, get your 45 day requirement for, you know, no maintenance operations. And then you can just like, and then, then Congress will be ready to throw, you know, all sorts of money at it. Um, but, you know, hopefully they're able to kind of just say, okay, it's five years till we get, to, before we get to a program of record. But, you know, over the next two or three years, if they build legitimacy with Congress, maybe they can pull that forward a little bit. Yeah, I, I hope so. I, I don't know if you, if you read the Congressional uh, Research Service uh report on this, but I, I felt it was a little bit of a sandbag kind of thing. Cause it was basically like laying out every single negative thing about like, well, we don't have a clear con ops for how it integrates with the fleet. And we don't know, like the, the, you know, technologies are not exactly right. And the, like, I mean, it basically like negative Nellied every single aspect of this, which, which I commented to a colleague is almost like, it's like Doolittle when you like bomb, you know, bomb the ship, them saying like, well, he didn't have, um, a war strategy for how to deploy the bomb. You know what I mean? It's oh, you like mean Billy like, Mitchell? I'm sorry, Billy Mitchell. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's sort of like... But it's, it's the same like, thing with the Doolittle, yeah, right? Like, they would be like, prove to me that you can like launch a B-29 right, off of I'm this carrying, and like yeah. show me the land base. You know, it's just like... Yeah, it's like... We don't we don't need to we don't need to prove out the con ops years in advance. Like this this thing is here. We can we can we can we can build them and we will find unique ways to use them and you know, maybe it's asymmetric, maybe it's not part of the fleet, maybe it's uh you know, maybe it's a hedge, like uh, you know, like a, a small agile thing. You know, but whatever, like let's get something else on the table. So for them to come out and say like your act strategies aren't like fully developed, your con ops aren't there we don't, you know, the reliability is not perfect. Like, is this really disappointing? I, I do hope they can overcome that, but um, they have some work ahead of them. All right. Yeah. So let's keep moving on and sticking with the, I guess, relationship with Congress. Top oversight Dems to Pentagon. Stop hiding info on war or weapons programs from the public. So the whole point here is, I guess, the dot e report came out recently and it had like two different versions, one which was controlled unclassified information that was really only available to DOD insiders in the Hill, and then the public version, which was really heavily redacted this time. And so the, the Democrats here are kind of asking, you know, the, the DOT&E and the Department of Defense itself to kind of like explain basically line by line, you know, why you decided to redact certain things. Um, and what the reason for that was. It seemed like they're saying, oh, well, because of China and Russia, we don't want to like tip our hands. But, you know, even for some of the very same weapon systems, like the CH-53K had all sorts of information the last few years. Um, and then they basically no data on uh, the aircraft as they're kind of moving into procurement here um, about the deficiencies enc encountered. So I guess there's some trepidation 
Um, of course, the Democrats were able to see it. The lawmakers could see it, right? <laughs> but I think the whole point is, you know, what can be made available and, and what cannot be. And I think this gets back to our earlier discussion a little bit. You know, if you're doing really well, you know, don't you want some of that information coming out? Aren't you? Or like in their case, it's almost like we, we're doing so well, we don't want anyone to know how great we are. But it feels like that it there might be just like not wanting to say how bad things really are because they've been doing this with the F-35 for the past few years, right? They're kind of like incrementally reducing the amount of information coming out of there. But who knows what that's, I don't have no idea what that's really about, but what's your view? Yeah, I think the CUI thing is really, um, I don't think it's well understood. I think they actually are going to be pretty challenged to to do that. I, I look forward if they uh, make it public, I look forward to seeing what that, what their, uh, how they come up with the determination on, you know, oh yeah, this is definitely CUI. This is not, you know, because I mean, there, there's policy, there's new policy out on it. And, you know, essentially what it boils down to is like, there's CUI is at a moderate confidentiality impact level. So it, it's sort of like, you have to make that determination of where that falls, right? It's not, uh, it, it's, it's not subject to FOIA and stuff like that. And it's like supposed to be somewhat, secured but you know i think um i think it's starting to get overused and i think that's really problematic and for things like dot and e uh reports and stuff like that you need to build confidence with the public and you need to be we need to have open um you know really open uh, uh channels there and it's hard i mean even for even for senators you're right they can get it but it's like a lot harder to get these reports when it has to be through protected channels it means they have to get encrypted emails from things and you know how encryption works with like you know when you're like going across systems and stuff like that and some people don't have like the certs aren't right and all you know it's just like it adds another level of complexity just send and it so, over whatsapp right <laughs> yeah I, I, I right i know so it's i you know i don't know um i don't know exactly like um you know what the congressional members were were hoping to do with this but i think they're right to call it out and to say Hey, when this was under FOIA or FOUO, you guys didn't, didn't you know, didn't have it have it uh, concealed. So why is it now? Uh, we just need to be a lot more open kimono with um, with the public and with the and with the Hill. And this sounds like we're kind of moving in the wrong trend. So this, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, my view is, you know, selected acquisition reports, APBs, and DOT and E reports are not actually all that informative. <laughs> you know, like we need to kind of upend this this style of oversight really get down to more contextual capability over time curves, you know, what metrics make sense, some more narrative, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm not really sure exactly what that looks like, but we got to, we got to change the game of oversight, you know, and I think that's part of PBBE reform, right? How do we improve oversight to allow the trust such that you can manage as portfolios move quickly and not like run into Congress every time and try to, explain to them you know this con op is a hundred percent before you can do anything well i'm with you on you know uh, s sort of from the um you know going back to like the you know days in the past where you had real conversations you had people who you know who actually knew what they were talking about um could have could answer those really tough questions where i think now we've sort of we've sort of depended on information systems to convey this key, you know, key information that can be digestible by anybody. And it's just not, this is not the way, 
complex systems, especially acquisition, military acquisition works. There's so many nuances that, that you just can't appreciate unless you have a conversation with, with somebody. Um, so yeah, I'd like to, I really, really hope we can open up that, uh, those communication channels and have real discussions about like, why isn't this working? What can we do to make this better? What is dry, What is your biggest risk? What is really, what is eating your lunch? In some cases, it's actually not even the technology. I think if they had these conversations, they would find that like, you know, I was always amazed whenever I went out to program offices and I was at headquarters and I would talk to folks about what was like the problem. It would be like things like I can't hire. Like I was at Hill Air Force Base and they were like, we can't hire anybody uh, that can get a clearance because too many people in the area, you know, like too many people have like a drug, you know, have done drugs or like whatever. Like you can't hire enough people or you can't get um, you can't get people clear to the, to the levels you need them to and you can't get the clearances processed fast enough. Like sometimes you find that some of the issues are are actually more mundane than just like the technology is flawed. You know, it's just like, you know, so, so I think digging in and sort of understanding that level of, of, of detail, not that every member of Congress has to do that, for, but key, you know, key people on defense congressional committees and key staffers, I think that kind of information would be really helpful. So yeah, I hope we can move in that direction. Yeah, my my supposition or view might be like, how do you almost use like merge project history? into oversight and then you know like could you have like a historian who's really like interviewing people bringing together the narrative but then also like curating the official like cost data by work breakdown structure test data that's come out like systems engineering challenges and fixes and specifications over time and stuff like that like have like the one true authoritative kind of place but then the problem becomes it feels like no matter what you do a lot of this become like it becomes almost unmanageable. Like you really you can't have like one oversight guy looking at like a hundred programs. Like that would just be literally impossible. Right. So there's just like a cognitive overload problem of true oversight that feels really hard to kind of bridge unless you get really creative with like metrics. But then whenever you focus on one metric, you're always doing it at the expense of something else. Yeah, and, I, and I, I just don't think data ever gets you there. I think data is good when for companies that can use it for, you know, financial projections and like, okay, here's where sales are and this product is selling really well. I think you can use it for, you know, digital engineering data is, is extremely useful to say, you know, where we, you know, is there a testing showing that our models are good so that we can do, you know, digital engineering and, uh, you know, do designing without you know, actually having hardware. And there's a lot of areas where data is useful. I think where it's not useful, and I will always stick by this, I think, until someone can really prove otherwise, is it's not useful for oversight because I think there's just too many variables at play. I mean, for some technologies, you literally have like a handful of engineers who are like the core people who really understand how it works and how to finesse a radar to work correctly. I mean, it's some of it's black magic, and these guys are just so are so good at it that um, if there's a problem, they're the only ones that can handle it. And so, you know, a contract that is let, there might be a thousand people on it. But if a contractor is not doing well, and in many cases, programs will just say like, yeah, the contractor is not performing. But when you dig into why the contract is not performing, it's like, you know, there's like one or two guys down there and they're doing a million things. They're trying to solve like a million problems. And they're the only ones that are like smart enough to figure out this this thing. So, you know, it's just like, I think it's that kind of stuff where, you know, program managers need to dig into it more to understand why something's not working. 
Um, you can't rely on EVM data. You can't rely on, uh, you know, your next program management review to tell you this stuff. Like you, you gotta, you kind of have to get your hands dirty. And I think if staffers on the Hill really want to understand why a program is not doing right or why capability is not being filled in, they're going to have to, you know, have to have those deeper conversations. It's, it's just not going to come out. Advana is not going to tell you what the problem is. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Like Advana is never going to tell you, you know, how to make a decision, right? Like you can't just like aggregate, you know, some of these data and then like, the decision maker that doesn't really have the context can just say, you know, yes, no, or you get this much money or that much money, or go ahead with, with, you know, this key event into production or not. It seems like that. Yeah. That, that decision has to have the subjective qualitative kind of historical, like, how did you get here and what is the vision going forward? You know, you just can't separate those things. Um, but we'll move on. And the next one we got, Andural CRO, that's Chief Revenue Officer. There's no fair competition for non-traditional companies in defense. And this was from the West uh, Conference that just came out. And I'll just read the quote here. I would love someone to do a study to figure out how many open competitions are wired for a winner ahead of time before that solic- solicitation ever hits the light of day. Matt Steckman, Chief Revenue Officer, and Andural said, um, it's got to be 85%, right? There's no fair competition. You cannot start a new business right now and reach any kind of scale working with the Department of Defense, period, he said. We should all let that sink in a bit. So there's there's the quote. Um, <laughs> pretty heavy words from Andoro, which is really trying to you know, be one of those bellwethers of growth here. Uh, any thoughts on that? I mean, I think he has a good point that <laughs> I don't think he's right about like that there's a winner predicted at a time. Um, I think there's probably a small group of winners who are, who are predicted ahead of time, um, you know, unless it's like a sole source contract or something. But, you know, I, I think the problem is, and we've talked about this, is just how we write RFPs, right? We write them in such a way that they do favor uh, people who can decipher, you know, 500 page system requirements documents and uh, can can get all of the, you know, meet all the requirements. You know, now it's CMMC, but, you know, cost accounting systems and, you know, ex- having experience dealing with all the, the government uh, sort of processes. And, and those people, those vendors, if it's a bigger contract, they have a huge advantage. And uh, and folks that haven't done that before are going to be uh, going to be struggling. So, yeah, I don't think he's right. I, I don't think I don't think there's like this kind of thing where like, oh, this contract's written for Northrop. Uh, that's that's or you know Lockheed or whatever. But it's it's not like that. But it is that we are not good at working with um, emerging emerging commercial vendors that want to do more business with the DoD, that want to scale, that want to do real business, and not just get these marginal things, marginal contracts. So yeah, his point's valid. We need to do better, and I think there's just a million ways we can do better. So. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely believe that the Competition and Contracting Act is a policy failure because, you know, the amount of competition has actually gone down, regardless of whether the percent of total contracts using fair and open or full and open competition is actually there or not. But then with the um, with the competition, you know, Jordan Noon, who I just had on the podcast, said something pretty good where it is in some ways wired, maybe not for a specific company, but they'll put in like all this heritage legacy architectures or specifications. They just kind of presume that to be what was there because that's what they did before. 
and maybe that's what the market research said, but you know, maybe there's all sorts of new ways that a modern, you know, tech savvy firm would go about it. And it's just not in there. So in some ways they are wired and you get this solicitation. What do you do? I tell them they have to rewrite the whole damn thing. Like that's a, that's a hard thing to do. No, that's exactly right. It's, it's the, it's the SRDs. If I had to put anything, I think you could blame like sort of like, you know, the type of contract and, and things like that. But I think it real boils down to is that when you are developing requirements for a contract, people throw the kitchen sink in there and they, they just want to make sure that all the bases are covered. And that's a little bit of the mindset. The mindset isn't, well, what if we sort of like, let's see what the contractor comes up with. Like maybe there's a new way of doing this. It's like, well, if we don't put cybersecurity and we detail every single thing they're supposed to do, they're not going to do it. Or if we don't tell them every single architecture, you know, interface that they have to tie into, they're not going to understand. And so, well, how so, do yeah, you, it, how do you cost it out? Right? Like, how would you, how would you cost it? And then how would you like understand performance, the baseline, I guess, if you, if you kind of had these performance specs, right? Well, I, I mean, I think we need to do a lot more, but what you know, Mitre's kind of put together a, lot, a big thing on like challenge-based acquisition, and that's that's been something we've pushed. But is to do these small demos, just to have vendors show what they can do at small scale for small for smaller problems, and and judge a lot more on that. Like, hey, what is the team that you're bringing to the to the uh, to the uh, to the contract? Like, what are the you know what? How have you already thought through this? Like. You know, basically evaluating performance in other ways. The other part is source selection, right? Source selections are almost everybody is is programmed to do. Let's settle into the source selection. It's going to take six to nine to twelve to eighteen months, but you settle in and you read these like laborious, you know, proposals. And what is the what is the competition or what is the selection based on? It's like past performance. Go back and look at every other contract for relevancy and recency, and then it's like. What was their exact technical proposal and it better conform to what was asked for because if it doesn't they're going to get a deficiency so yeah so it's i think it's all baked into that process that doesn't actually encourage creativity or outside the box it's sort of like well make sure you do everything we asked and then we'll give you the contract and yeah the government's you know drive to make everything quote unquote fair in the competition actually makes it unfair not only to the competitors and especially new entrants, but also to the government to get what the hell it wants. <laughs> so I'll leave it there. And on a related note, um, the next one we got is Chief of Staff of the Air Force Brown releases modified action order as progress on bureaucracy remains elusive. So maybe this is related from Air Force Magazine. And I'll just read out the quote because it's pretty interesting. More specifically, current air staff decision-making remains cumbersome, slow, allows soft vetoes without accountability, and prioritizes compromise and consensus over decision quality. Mired in hierarchical processes and content with the status quo, the air staff must adapt to mission command and collaborative approaches to address the 21st century threats and competing strategic environment. I mean, I'm just like way on board with that, but... He can say all these nice things and he's been saying these nice things. What's actually got to happen here to make that right? This consensus based decision making is always going to be wrong. There's a great quote from George Scher where he was just like, who was the guy that designed the B-52, by the way, as the top engineer at Boeing for a long time. He was like, if we had if you got 10 smart people in a room and had them vote on whether we should invest in, 
you know, radar, jet engines, nuclear, you know, all this other stuff, they would have voted, all, all of them would have voted it down, right? We never would have gotten anywhere. So consensus decision-making is definitely a problem. Um, how do we get to, to the right place here? Mission command, like how can we get mission command into acquisition? Yeah, I mean, mission command, it's funny. We've been talking about that forever. The Army's, the Army's talked about it for a long time, but you know, it's, it's like when you look at the concept of operations for, for almost any mission, uh, there's this idea that there's some leader at the at the center of it that you know consumes the information and makes decisions, which is is just complete nonsense. You know, moving into this new paradigm, and the joint warfighting concept that General Hyatt issued uh, basically acknowledges that. So yeah, so for you know decisions in the Pentagon, um, you know this is this has been around for a while. This is General Brown's not kind of embracing this for the first time. This happened under General Welch. He had a strategic master plan that the Air Force had, and we all like came up with these lines of effort and we had like actions, like specific actions we were supposed to do. And it, it was a lot of like smoke. Um, some of it was, some of it was good. I think it had some good thinking behind it, but it was just sort of like, everyone just sort of played it out, right? Nobody was like really serious about it. And then even, uh, you know, uh, Secretary um, uh, Heather um, Wilson, when she came in, she kind of made this thing of like, I want to get rid of AFIs. And so, she kept a desk, a little mini desk in her office where she stacked up AFIs that she successfully got rescinded. But, it, you know, it didn't really achieve the effects that it was hoping for. So so I love where General Brown is going with this. I, I, I like you. I support this whole, wholeheartedly. I think you, the only way you can demonstrate this or the way you can really get action on this, for one, delegate, delegate shit. Like, you have to delegate decisions down and you have to say, this person, yes, they're a colonel. They're going to make this decision, and I trust them. They've been in the Air Force 23 years. Uh, they've, you know, demonstrated that they, you know, they don't make dumb, you know, a lot of dumb decisions. So maybe they'll make one or two dumb decisions. They probably won't make seven or eight. So I'm going to trust this person to make this decision. Like until you actually make, you have to show it. And I think that's where we kind of get the military in general gets this wrong. Is we say a lot of things, but then it's like every decision goes up to the four star and the message is, well, we're not really trying to improve things. Everything is going up anyway. So, so, you know, if there's no, if there's no uh, delegation, no accountability, then people just settle back into the rhythm. So, yeah, I think, um, I think he's going to have to make some, some big moves and to, you know, kind of be explicit about who makes what decisions and what level uh, those decisions are made at. Yeah. Chris Rose recently was on the EDO podcast for the Navy. He's talking about the, fractured nature of accountability in the department of defense and you have all these program managers that kind of rotate in and out and all that kind of stuff and it's yeah it's just a it's a big problem and everyone kind of admires the problem but you know they're i guess no one's really willing to go that next step and do what you said right delegate because you know since 2017 or so you know ellen lord's been delegating a whole bunch of programs and, you know even at the you know peo level a lot of these they're the decision authority on these ACAT twos and threes. And in some cases, you know, there's some ACAT ones that are pretty low. I don't know if they're at the PEO level for one, but um, they're at least at the service level. No, they're not for ones. Yeah, there you go. And um, so are you saying the next level is like basically delegate an ACAT one (laughs) down to down to the PEO or like because they've already done some delegation, right? Where like is that do we just need to move farther along that axis? Yeah, and I don't think it's all just programs. You know, like program decisions are one thing, and that's 
I think there has been a good amount of delegation there. Um, uh, there's still issues for sure with headquarters making, um, you know, making uh, getting ADM signed in a timely manner and things. But, but I think in general, it's like the larger larger decisions, right? Like, uh, you know, what things do you invest in? You know, so there's a lot of boards. The, the Air Force is picking at the Air Force, and so that's what we're talking about. You know, there's like there's a um, an Air Force, uh, there's an Air Force board, which is at like the more like the two, the one star level. Then there's like an Air Force Council, which is more at the two three star level. Then there's uh, the uh, oh, there's a third one. What's that third one called? This, this uh, is the uh, corporate structure, right? It's a corporate structure, exactly. So there's this whole corporate structure where like decisions have to flow through. So really, what it boils down to is that like lieutenant colonels are actually doing most of the heavy lifting because they're coming up with all the uh, you know decisions to tee up to the next level. And then it goes filtered, but it takes, you know, it takes a lot of time. And so instead of saying, you know, I think one way to do it would be to say, okay, when it comes to requirements, you know, if this is a, a software program below a certain level, you know, this person's going to sign off on it. And the chief of staff's only going to get involved if, you know, there's like something, some huge, you know, ERP type thing or some, you know, major mission system that's going to be deployed, you know, in a really critically sensitive way or something. It's like, it's, I think you need to come up with parameters, like the boundaries to say, when is something brought up to a higher level? And let those, let those lower level decisions be made by, by, by teams of people that are smart and with an empowered person. And then, uh, and then I think you get more of this. I think you can move in this direction, but uh, yeah, it, it's not all about acquisition decision. There's a lot of other stuff that happens at headquarters. Yeah. And it's also, just like the planning of the baseline. Even if you did delegate the decisions, it's just like, well, they can make some decisions, but you know, are they able to change the parameters? You know, like what their key performance parameters are? Yeah, you know, that's that's maybe not at their level, right? Yeah, I mean some of this is some of this is hard. Some of it does require senior leader sign off because you're just never gonna be able to have a kernel sign off on some things. I mean, some of it's just going to require general, but I, I do think I, I kind of view a one stars as being completely underutilized resources. I think the one star general is a, uh, is a perfect rank for having the general officer title, but being connected enough, like having come from, you know, being in the trenches a little bit more. Um, and so they still have that perspective and they can really make kind of like balance those, uh, those strategic and tactical, but very few decisions are made at the one-star level. It almost always goes to a three-star. It's almost like three and four stars where any real decisions are made. And just the filtering process to get up there is, I, I think it boil, I think it condenses things down in a way that doesn't have the nuance. And that's one thing I saw is like, uh, as things got up there for one, the option space wasn't often there. So like by the time it gets up there, it's sort of like, okay, we don't want to bother the general. We only have 30 minutes with them. So let's give them, like, let's get to the point. And so you don't get all the nuance. And then, you know, it's sort of like, um, and then the other part is because they don't have to always have time, this part about consensus is really critical. Like oftentimes you will see in boards where like you go in there and you go, what is everybody's, they'll ask this question. This is a common one. What is everybody's number one priority? So instead of doing a rack and sack and saying, what is the best thing for the strategy that we're trying to achieve? They'll be like, what is everybody's priority? Because everyone has equity in the room. We'll just do everyone's number one, make sure everyone gets their number one priority, and then we'll look at the rest of the stuff. You know, and that's just that's just a common approach to, that that really does drive consensus decision versus or versus decision quality, which is, hey, no, I'm sorry, that I appreciate that that's your number one, but 
that's just not going to bring the impacts that we need to for the Pacific flight. You know, those kind of things are really hard. Those kind of decisions are hard to hard to see. They don't they don't happen that often. Yeah, it seems like the the management by exception, like the hard things that people literally can't answer, are the only things that should bubble up. And then those things need like ample amounts of debate and context for those decisions to be made. But it seems like almost everything else should be made at the lower levels, right? Unless it means big budgetary moves or like a real qualitative change in like the mission that you're trying to accomplish. Just like make those damn decisions at the lower levels, right? And when you get into a conflict or someone's equity isn't being met and they're super pissed, then you can like elegate, you can like elevate that. But otherwise, just go at it, right? But they're also yeah. moving pretty fast. So like to a different job. <laughs> Well, that's true. You know what is funny? I've always thought this is funny. The diff- the sometimes the the promotion timeline between a one star and a three star will be like you know three or four years, or you know if you're on the fast track, maybe five years. So it's not like it's not like that much time. Like it's not like you have that much more experience. So it's kind of funny sometimes. Like we we kind of feel like we have to make these decisions at a high level because people are in certain positions, but. In reality, the experience differential is is not often that great. So, yeah, I think we I think that's something else to look at is like when you look at decisions, be like, what? Okay, what is the experience I'm looking for? If somebody meets it, who cares what their rank is? Like, give them that give them that responsibility. All right. So, Army needs to use uh, the software authorities better. Uh, new acquisition leader says, and that's Doug Bush, who is the new Army Service Acquisition Executive, and he was just kind of talking here about. You know, the way the Army buys software is kind of going to be a priority for him. A lot of the article actually discussed the color of money, but the interview that I listened to, he talked a lot more about um, the software acquisition pathway as well. So those two things going hand in hand. So a little bit more, you know, reinforcement on on some of the software movement uh, from Doug Bush. So good to have him getting, getting people confirmed, right? Yeah, it's good to have people confirmed. I will say the Army has a little bit of work to do on this one. Um, I think we're we're happy to see the support, but um, there basically there's been no delegation of authorities to approve software pathway programs. So um, we need to see that delegation come back down from the SAE because right now all all alternative pathways have to be approved at at, the, at that level, which. Which is not a good, not a good way to, um, you know, to promote those uses because anybody who, you know, if you're an ACAT two or three program that you might normally not have to go up there if you decide to use MTA or Software Pathway, you will have to go up, and it's almost disincentivizing the use of the Software Pathway. So, uh, so yeah, I hope that changes. Um, on the color of money, there is the Army does have one really good program that's a cyber program that uh, is making a really really good use of BA8 and. So I think uh, they've done some articles and stuff recently, and I think they're going to be a good uh, pilot to, to show just the potential for, for why that's so impactful. So, yeah, some good stuff on the Army, but, some yeah, got some things to work on. All right, next one we got. Trouble littoral ship cannot perform missions, GAO says. That's the LCS. And this program here, $31 billion has been spent, yet operational testing has found significant challenges, including the ability of the ship to defend itself if attacked and failure rates of mission essential equipment. And so this Navy's, uh, the LCS, they were going to buy 55 vessels. They're now planning 35. 
um, and the unit price more than doubled from 220 to 478 million a piece. I, I'm sure that's in some fiscal year 20, you know, 10 dollar or something like that. So um, just just more on the LCS troubles. Not not much new, I don't think. No, we beat up enough on the LCS. <laughs> well, <laughs> yep. I mean, the Navy the Navy did say they were going to retire them. They're going to like basically field them and then divest of them. So yeah, it is it is sort of kind of a bizarre situation. You got to use them to get up to your uh, 500 ship goal, though, right? Like you already got the production <laughs> lines going. <laughs> Following first demonstration, Edge unveils swarming drones based on AI technology. And this is Halcon, a subsidiary of UAE's Edge Group. So now we got the Middle East becoming players here in the swarming drones game. They have a tube launch swarm drone system known as the Hunter 2S. It can fire 36 drones and control them. Um, but their tube launch system comes in packs of 21, and they're, of course, trying to increase how many drones they can move together. And they'll all have, you know, identification of friendlier foe systems, and they will in- they will be able to target, they said here, which is pretty interesting, enemy fighter jets on the tarmac and incoming convoys of enemy armored vehicles. And the Hunter 2S uses 3D printed parts, you know, so... And specifically qualified for thermoplastic material. So it sounds like, you know, this might be pretty high end. Again, a lot of the, you know, power of these systems is probably also going to be in the software. So it's hard to kind of tell from specs alone. You, you got to see it and, and see how it tests. But, um, you know, especially with, you know, Turkey kind of seeming like they're jumping out, not necessarily in the lead, but they're doing a lot of interesting things. There's all sorts of these developments that are coming out from kind of, you know, third worldish type countries that have enough money, and uh, looks like there's going to be a lot of competition for America. <laughs> you know, or just like these things might just be proliferating all over the place, right? Yeah, I feel I feel like in some ways we're we've kind of gotten behind because we're we're still focusing a lot on you know kind of the big aircraft programs and stuff, and um, you know other countries that can can't afford you know some of these countries that just can't afford a bunch of F-35s and you know, $100 million fighter aircraft are like turning to drones. You know, I think we saw it in the, the Azerbaijan war and even in Ukraine, the, the, the Turkey, uh, Turkey and Ukraine actually have an agreement. Uh, Ukraine was going to provide the engines for, uh, what was it, the SB2 or something? Uh, but they're actually using them against Russian tanks. And, you know, it's hard to tell exactly what's going on right now, but it sounds like they've had at least some successes, uh, targeting russian tanks with uh with those turkey turkey uh, uavs so uh yeah we, we we really need to get back in the game here and start fielding some some drones and taking advantage of some of the darpa stuff that they've done with swarming and start to start to come up with some concepts of operations about how to use them in different ways because uh yeah you can see i mean i just kind of think about like you know a bunch of enemy you know a bunch of fighter jets uh, sophisticated j20s or something coming at you like yeah you send a bunch of you know cheaper drones at them you know uh if they each had like a missile on them, they could probably, uh, you know, probably create some havoc. So yeah, there's lots of different ways we just need to start playing around more. Yeah, but you got to network them because they're probably not going to have the the kind of targeting and radar systems. You know, those so. be closer. Those be a lot closer. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, like those approaching aircraft will, you know, they're not going to have enough missiles to take out. You know, all of these different like really low cost drones, even if they can't see them from forever away. Right. Yeah. They wouldn't be able to, uh, yeah, wouldn't be able to take out a swarm, especially if it's like, especially if it has some ability to like, 
you know, detect, you know, like if, 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 if drones start, you know, getting started, start dropping, they, you know, are programmed to fly in a different direction and get out of the way or something, you know, like, this seems all kinds of fun things you could do with this that, uh, DARPA seems to be the only one that's really doing anything. Yeah. Um, well, the Golden Horde, right? I think that's a Vanguard program from AFRL. Um, yeah, on the SP2 stuff. Yeah, that that one that one is good. I think on the munition front. Uh, you know, yeah, I've, I haven't. We'll have to check back in with that and see where they're at with that. that yeah, I wonder what they're what they're up to. But that's a yeah. You know, you you would have expected if the U.S. had been working on this, they could get all sorts of free you know, combat testing and specs, just like giving them to the Ukrainians, right? Um, <laughs> like a wasted opportunity right there. Cause it would have been a, a whole bunch of money, you know, to send a, a whole bunch of these like switchblade 300, 600s and all sorts of other things over there and just see what's going on. I wonder if they're, they're using those. Um, yeah. I know the only ones I've heard about are the, the Turkish ones, but uh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely be kind of interesting. If they started buying some Kratos stuff and actually show, <laughs> show how it can be used. Like, oh, yeah, maybe we should buy more of those. Well, the switchblades yeah. are the mm-hmm. air environment, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, they're the air environment. But you could also get, like, the macro or some of those other types of Kratos things. Um, you and need something to, po- launch the, <laughs> to launch the switchblades. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just put them on a vehicle, right? Uh, but Yeah, I'm, yeah, 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 if you're close to something, yeah. Well, you just—it seems like things are getting pretty close there. <laughs> it does, it does sound like that. <laughs> it's funny. Did you you, you heard uh, that Poland is going to send like all of their MiG twenty nines over to to Ukraine? Did that. you hear that? Yeah, that's pretty crazy. It's kind of interesting. Kind of interesting. Well, the ghost, make... of, the ghost of Kiev. How many more ghosts of Kiev can we have? <laughs> yeah, I I always wonder about that. I was I was talking to someone. It's just like it's really hard to know, you know, what the actual kills are. You know, were multiple people calling kills? Is that goes to Kiev, you know, taking down a Su-35 and all sorts of other, you know, aircraft. I wonder if that's true. If it's true, it's great. But even if it's not true, you know, he just hit one or two and some of those might have been false. Um, it's still a good morale story, right? Oh, so, yeah, it's, a, it's. I mean, the one thing, the one story that we can take away, and I hope everything calms down and, and, and no more people are killed, so, you know, uh, you know, definitely a thoughts go out to the, the Ukrainians. But um, yeah, if nothing else comes from this, the, the one story will be is just the uh, the social media war. Uh, they have just been brilliant. I mean, just in terms of keeping morale high. And I mean, just just the, you know, the guys on the island, you know, saying, uh, you know, go, go F yourself. And, oh, Snake Island? But they all died. <laughs> no, 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 no. They actually survived. They think they Oh, they I think thought I heard they survived. died. They did. They did say that, and they came back uh, just yesterday, I think, and said like they may have actually a bunch of them survived because they took cover or something. But um, yeah, okay. and then just like the guys on the street are like doing these videos. These soldiers are, like, if you come here, you will die. And like you know, like really, really interesting social media war that I don't think we've seen. I don't think we've seen before. So uh, it's a it's a new age. Yeah, it is, but. I don't know. I've been I've been hearing these like or seeing these sketchy articles that are like five thousand troops in Russia that, like refuse to to follow orders and you know mm-hmm. morale is falling. I wonder how much of that is true. And even if it is true, like I'm still like I'm pretty hopeful. It seems like you know the stock market and and other things are kind of you know rebounding. But so I guess people are expecting that you know Putin's gonna <laughs> get bogged down or you know get expelled even, but I'm I'm still kind of worried, you know, like it's not it ain't over. It's hard to know what's actually going on, you know. 
there's just so much information now too yeah it's really it's really hard to know like exactly what's going on i i did talk to a few army friends though who said if russia if the russians have to go through the streets of kiv they are they're going to get butchered i mean like basically they we learned the lessons of like going through baghdad and uh you know it, it took a lot of american soldiers and a lot of technology and a lot of logistics to kind of be able to to do that and we still you know it was like incredibly hard and so yeah if they do that and let be unless they demolish the entire town before they come in they're gonna they're gonna take this massive casualty so yeah not not a good situation either way but um it does look like russia has some hard times to hit yeah for, for the capital of this uh, so we'll we'll move from Russia to China. Losing the tech war to China after hypersonic missiles, ex-Google CEO says U.S. is far behind another critical technology, and that's Eric Schmidt, of course, saying that 5G is one of the areas that the government has been dithering on and is well behind. Uh, the Chinese company Huawei, it still remains the top 5G provider globally. Um, the Federal Aviation Administration, of course, the hysterics over the 5G um, for aircraft and uh, interfering with uh, radio altimeters. So all sorts of things. The Chinese government, they say, have, has also invested $50 billion into 5G networks, while the U.S. has only allocated $1.5 billion. Uh, so there's some kind of scare tactics on 5G. I also wonder to what degree, you know, $50 billion versus $1.5. You know, if you just looked at total... You know, is that fifty billion the subsidies to Huawei, and then what's the total Huawei investment versus total private investment in the U.S.? That's kind of like the apples to apples comparison I'd like to see, because the U.S. I wouldn't necessarily recommend you know government start subsidizing and doing all this you know active management of five G networks, because that probably wouldn't work out very well. That's why we have a market economy, right? Yeah, I do. I mean, but I do think at the same time, you're probably right that 1.5 is probably not probably not an accurate thing if you take all the investments from from the different telecom companies and stuff. But the I think I think in a way, though, our market system, the way that stocks are kind of drive executive compensation may actually be a little bit of a limiter because companies are so focused on profitability and, and not, uh, you know, making investments too far in advance that, you um, you know, basically reduce their cash flow and things like that. So, you know, it's possible that our telecom companies are hedging and making incremental improvements uh, because they want to, you know, they want to do enough to kind of, you know, put that 5G, no, you know, nomenclature on there. But then, you know, but China is actually sort of like doing the leap ahead thing, which is part of their strategy is to do leap ahead. So, so yeah, they, they may actually be making those bigger bigger investments and the government's putting a lot more investment behind it. So this is why I think we need the Competes Act or the USICA uh, with, with big money behind it so that we can make sure uh, there's government dollars behind this that uh, that maybe the private sector is just not motivated enough to, to, to put there. So Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but it's also like the private sector isn't motivated enough so let's get the governments to motive like that doesn't compute right so it might it might be that the telecoms are just comfy big old and they know they have a huge regulatory wall right that keeps them insulated and so why do they have to move as opposed to maybe the what government needs to do instead of just subsidizing something that's screwed just like tear down some of that structure right like in the 1970s when they decided to deregulate the airline industry 
like the precipitous price decreases and competition that ensued, right? So maybe you get them to that longer term view. And, and I guess you're right. There's also the compensation quarterly earnings thing, but that that kind of bringing down the barriers might you might have new companies and then they start feeling threatened from kind of like upstart. So they they do stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. You're right. The FCC probably has a has a role in this. I, I just, you know, I guess it depends on how you view it. If you view it like a nuclear plant, you know, it's like there's sometimes there's a business case that the, this is not compelling enough for a commercial sector. And sometimes the government has to, you know, invest in these capital sort of things. But yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe just like relaxing some of the FCC sort of uh, regulatory stuff would, would motivate um, other parties to, to compete more. Well, inflation might be up, but interest rates are down like hell. So people are trying to get their money <laughs> somewhere, right? I don't think capital investment is necessarily a problem. <laughs> these That's days. a good point. You're right. There's so much <laughs> cash out there. You're right. Yeah. It's just uh, flowing everywhere. The last one we'll do. Why are the details of Navy's project overmatch so scarce? Adversaries' eyes, for one. And here's another <laughs> one of these things, right? They're, the Navy's basically been pretty tight-lipped over Project Overmatch, which, of course, is their JADC2 kind of component. And uh, they're they're basically just saying they've been very deliberate keeping a low profile. Our competitors steal everything, and they're not ashamed of it. And so, yeah, I mean, that's one way of looking at it. My, my view is more like it's less to you know, avoid information getting to China and more about allowing them to get around program oversight, right? Like have all these different programs kind of fund different pieces of it um, through what they're already doing and then kind of coordinate that under Admiral Small, but there's not like this big, you know, program of record necessarily for project overmatch. And so it kind of keeps them out of the problem that maybe ABMS got into too early, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think it's definitely part of it. I mean, almost in almost all cases with this kind of these kinds of big development efforts, there's always like some secret sauce stuff you have to be you have to keep secret. But it's it's pretty, it's pretty rare that the entire thing has to be secret. I mean, even the B21, right? I mean, there's probably stuff that uh, didn't need to be classified, but they just decided to throw it all into one basket. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't think this is the right way to go. I think ABMS is you know, I think we have to. Wait, one do thing you we think have... it's not the right way to go? I'll, I'll just ping you on that. Well, like, yeah, would you yeah, rather I... have a program of record that just like literally does it, and then you have like this coordinating office, or would you rather just like every? I mean, ABMS is trying to do this now too, right? They have their own budget, but then they're they have to track every other expenditure in every other program related to them, and like the Navy doesn't have to do any of that crap. So, so are they, is the Navy taking the wrong? Like, should they have created a program office for it? Well, actually, the Air Force one, the ABMS isn't that bad. They they have to, they do have to show their different product lines, and and there is some Congress did, did ask for some, like, hey, what are other programs doing? But it's it's not it's not quite as bad as, um, as as all that. I mean, I think the point though is that, yeah, if I was a program manager, would I want to you know classify? Would it make it eat my life a little bit easier? Yeah, maybe, but it also makes your life kind of hell because if it's all classified, it's like you can't have you can't you can't get the collaboration in some areas. You can't share stuff. You can't. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a mixed bag. Uh, I think, um, yeah, I think the other part of is, is this also goes to the jointness is whenever you make something secret, it's, it's also hard to share with other services. It, it makes it really hard to collaborate. And this happens in the EW space a lot where like 
the Navy can't even talk to the Air Force about the UW stuff. Like you can't get the clearances to work across. And it's just madness. So yeah, so I think they probably will quickly need to figure out what things are really, you know, secret sauce they need to keep, you know, from from the um, from the Chinese. Um, and what things, you know, they can start to say, yeah, here's how we're doing it. We're doing some really smart stuff. We have this digital infrastructure. Uh, we're using, you know, kind of everything has an API and we just feed it all in. It's a, you know, it's a clean data flow or we're using, you know, stitches kind of stuff or whatever their approach is. It sounds like it's innovative. Um, you know, share that with, uh, with, the, with the Army and the Air Force and uh, let's uh, let's get everybody on the same page here. So we don't have to stand up a JPO like Todd, Todd Harrison's proposing. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have they been... Have, well, have they actually classified this whole thing, or are they, they just had, they like had not to. talking about it? It's, no, it's they've classified. had to. They've had to, yeah. And there's That's usually, crazy. whenever they classify something, they have to, uh, I mean, there's literally like one staffer, you know, on each defense committee who can often get get eyes on it. Um, I will say, in the past, the classified lines didn't get a lot of marks against it. If you look in the past few years, the classified lines have actually taken some real marks. So I'm not sure it's as protective um, in terms of funding as it used to be. I think uh, Congress has gotten a little tired of this. So um, so in one way, this might actually backfire by, by not being it. Whereas ABMS has actually survived, you know, relatively well, even though they, they continue to get a lot of criticism. But. Yeah. Do you, well, for the Navy here, I, I remember they said that um, the program office within C4ISR was going to kind of take the lead on this, but it wasn't clear. Do they have like a like a classified or unclassified program element specifically like called overmatch. Cause no. my assumption was just like, they're Probably. just kind of taken from PEs all over the place that kind of have like adjacent, you know, requirements. Yeah. There's usually like a few classified PEs and a bunch of stuff crammed in there. So there's like, you know, if you have the classified breakout, you can see some of it, but they purposely don't break things out into uh you know, into individual ones because if somebody could associate it, then it kind of gives us and gives an idea of how much money is being spent, and that's something they try not to do. So, yeah, you probably wouldn't see anything. I don't know. You have to look at the budget docs and see, but in general, they wouldn't do that. They would kind of just put it under a classified line, and that's all that the budget docs would say, unless you get the the classified version. But there is no classified project overmatch line, or is there? well, there is. There's a there's oh there docs. is okay. You still you still have to do budget docs. It's just that there's only like one or two staffers who are generally cleared. Um, but they just stood up yeah. the the program or like the they assigned it to that program office. Like I don't think Admiral Small over there in Navwar, like literally had a project overmatch PE. I was I just thought he was kind of scraping together money where he could. But you're saying that there probably is like a PE project overmatch or something related yeah. to it, yeah. and it's just in the classified bucket. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that makes sense too. I just thought he was kind of like the the coordinator in chief there. Yeah. I mean, they could have it spread around. I don't know, but uh, generally, there's you do have to have a classified budget budget document um, for for it. So it's not like you have nothing. You just you just have like you know uh, something that only a few people can actually see. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, that's all we got time for uh, this week. We'll talk to you next time. And Matt, thanks for joining. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.